All right, welcome to our third annual Summer of Psalms. The first one we did, we Zoomed because we weren't even meeting in the church for those weeks. And then last year we looked at 12 different psalms. And this year we're going to do 10 weeks. And we'll probably look at nine psalms because one of them is very long and we'll split it. But I want to welcome you here tonight. This year I'm excited to uh, teach this series because I didn't choose most of these psalms. Some of you did. We asked you last year, and some people came to me and said, think about this psalm. Normally, I'll read a psalm, I go through them every day, read through them through the year, and I pick one and go, I want to I teach that, I want to preach that one. But this year, you chose them, so it made me work a little harder, dig a little deeper, but it was well worth it, and I hope it will be for you. I've said many times that everyone should be reading a psalm a day. And if you read a psalm a day, in two years, you'll read through the book of Psalms five times. And your prayer life is going to grow, which we'll talk about tonight. Your praise life will grow, which we'll talk about next week. And you'll draw closer to the living God, and you'll find comfort in difficult times when you have trouble and difficulty. We're going to look at the Psalm 91 tonight. I call it the 911 Psalm. Next week, we'll look at Psalm 98, the joy to the world Psalm. And then we'll look at Psalm 88, which is the saddest Psalm in the entire Psalter. And then we're going to look at the Do Not Fret Psalm. That's the one with 40 verses. And we, Psalm 37, we might have to take two weeks for that one. Then we're going to look at Psalm 147 called the One Psalm. And then we'll look at Psalm 77, the worthlessness of wealth psalm. And then Psalm 101, overcoming depression psalm. And then Psalm 145, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. The, the overcoming psalm. Is Psalm 77, overcoming depression is Psalm 77, and Psalm 101 is the commitment psalm, and then Psalm 145 is the last praise of King David. So that's nine psalms, and we'll probably have to take two weeks to do Psalm 37. So if you would turn in your Bible to Psalm 91, and we'll pray. Psalm 91. Father, we praise you tonight because we can open the, the book of Psalms and we can learn from you. And our prayer, Father, our prayer tonight is that when we leave this place, we'd be drawn closer to you and that we would take time throughout the day to pray without ceasing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 91, as you see at the top, has no heading. It has no author. And I'll look at that in a little bit. But I'm not going to give you a lot of background on the Psalms. I did that the last three years. I've given you lots of information about the Psalms. But just quickly, you know, the book of Psalms, it took... Almost 1,000 years to write. There's no book of the Bible quite like it of the 66 books. The earliest psalm was Psalm 90, which Tim opened in our worship service on Sunday, right? And that psalm was written by Moses and was probably written in about 1405 B.C. And then David's psalms, which he wrote about 73 of them, he would have written his psalms between 1020 and 975 B.C. Solomon would have written Psalm 127 and 72 approximately 950 B.C., and we believe at least two psalms appear to be contemporary with the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century. That would be Psalms 126 and Psalms 137, written about 500 B.C. So you can see almost 900, over 900 years to write this book of psalms. We know that there are at least seven authors. David wrote at least 73, and then there's 27 other psalms written by an additional six authors. But tonight's psalm is one we call the Orphan Psalm. There's 50 of the 100 psalms. We don't know who wrote them. Now, look at Psalm 90 real quick. Tim opened it in prayer on Sunday. Psalm 90, verse 1. It says, 
Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Okay, emphasis on dwelling place. Now look at our psalm tonight, Psalm 91, and look at verse 9. It says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. So some commentators would make the case that Psalm 90 and 91 are written by Moses, emphasis on that dwelling place. That's a pretty hard uh, to prove that, but possible they are lined up. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, In the whole collection of psalms, there is not a more cheerful psalm than this one. Its tone is elevated and sustained throughout. Faith is at its best and speaks nobly. J. Vernon McGee said that Psalms 90 is a psalm of death, so Psalm 91 is the psalm of life. Psalm 91 has given us two great hymns. I'm not sure we've sung them here, but one is, And Is There Care in Heaven by Edmund Spencer? And another one is, He Liveth Long, Who Liveth Well by Horatius Bonar. The type of this psalm, if you're into the categories, I usually tell you, uh, there's about seven different kind of categories. This one would be a song of trust, a song of trust. And the main idea is just trusting in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord so much that you talk with him, you dwell with him, you abide with him. One interesting fact about Psalm 91 uh, happened in World War I. World War I was the war that was called the the war to end all wars, which didn't actually happen. But apparently in Psalm Psalm 91 was the favorite psalm of the soldiers in the trenches in World War I, and it became known as the Trench Psalm. So if you've seen the movie 1917, which most of it's not in the trenches, but Wonder Woman, is, you saw the trenches and uh, War Horse. You've seen not too many World War I movies. But the soldiers spent their time in the trenches. And if they stuck their head up and charged, there was barbed wire, there were machine guns, poison gas, all kinds of new weapons. So apparently many people, they memorized Psalm 91, and uh, it was called the, the Trench Psalm. So I didn't know that before. So many of those soldiers would die, but God was their ever defense by knowing Psalm 91. The book of Psalms is in the, what we call the five books of poetry. And, you know, we have 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, and five of the books of the Old Testament are what we call poetry books. The first poetry book is Job. And when I'm, when I'm done with Psalms in 10 weeks, Lance will begin the book of Job. Job is the book that teaches us how to suffer. Psalms is the book that teaches us how to pray, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Proverbs is the book that teaches us how to act. And Ecclesiastes is the book that teaches us how to enjoy. And Song of of Solomon is how to love. So how to suffer, how to pray, how to act, how to enjoy, and how to love. All the Psalms are wonderful, but there's certain ones that give strength and comfort, especially during trying times. Psalms 91 is one of those psalms that people turn to in times of sickness, in times of trouble. That's why I call it the time to dial 911 psalm. Has anybody ever heard dial 911? Anybody? A few of you? Okay. The, the number 911, do you know how it was introduced? It wasn't until 1968 that they came up with the idea to have a standard emergency number. And on February 16, 1968, Alabama Senator Rankin Fight made the first 911 call in the United States in Haleyville, Alabama. And that was with the Alabama Telephone Company. A week later, Nome, Alaska implemented the 911 system, and subsequently, almost every county in the United States, now 99% of America, has the 911. 
After its initial ex- late reluctant acceptance in the 60s and the 70s, the 911 system spread across the United States. And I'm going to take the case tonight that as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to dial 911 like never before. We need to dial 911 in prayer to our Heavenly Father like no time ever in the history of America or our world. Because we're in a spiritual warfare. We're in a spiritual war, and it's a time of emergency, and it's a time of an urgency as our country and our world are slowly becoming like Genesis 6-5 that says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was evil continually. There are three uh, paragraphs, and most of you should have an outline. If you don't have an outline, there's one back there. But the first paragraph, I'm going to read the verses by the paragraphs. So we'll just read the first two verses now. But point one is dial 911 because of God's character, and that's verses 1 and 2. So let's read verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. If you remember last year when I mentioned when you look at the paragraphs in the Psalms, always look at the personal pronouns because they change. So this first paragraph, you have he and I a few times and my, my, my. So the personal pronoun here is from the psalmist, probably a priest in the temple uh, calling out. So for our application, it would be you or me here. And you'll see that changes in the the last paragraph. And we have two sub-points tonight. The prayer warrior lives in the Lord's presence, and the prayer warrior trusts in the Lord's protection. So let's look at verse 1. The prayer warrior lives in the Lord's presence. The verse says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I use the word warrior as prayer warrior, and Webster's Dictionary gives the definition of a warrior as a person engaged in some struggle or conflict. And we need Christians all over America to be praying, and we need more to be praying than ever. When you dial 911 in California, you can expect two things, right? You're going to be assured that the phone call will be answered, and number two, that you will get a first responder to come. That's not the case when you live in India or Thailand or Myanmar, where I've been. Myanmar doesn't have a 911 system. India has it. It's 112, and I think Thailand is 191. But don't expect to get through, and don't expect anybody to come to your house if you dial those numbers. But we are blessed in America to dial 911, and I know there's been budget cuts and defunding police and different times, so maybe you have to wait a little longer, but... We can count on the operator answering the 911 call and the first responders coming. So when you dial 911 to the very throne room of heaven, or 9112, we have a direct and immediately access to the very throne room of God, where Jesus himself sits at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3.22 says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. And then my favorite verse probably in the whole Bible on prayer is in Hebrews 4, and it says in verse 15 and 16, talking about Jesus Christ, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize us with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And then verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. He says, let us then with confidence draw near 
to the throne of grace. We have an open invitation to dial 911 anytime to go to the very throne room of God. Our psalm begins with the word, he, he, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. It's probably a priest here. For our context, it would be Christians. But it's not just Christians, because you'll talk more about that later. It's a disciple of Jesus Christ who loves to live in the presence of the Lord and who loves to pray to the Lord. He or she is constantly praying, like 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. He prays in the morning. He prays throughout the day. He prays in the evening. He might wake up in the middle of the night and pray. We have a prayer group here, and we get texts. I get texts throughout the day. People will send in prayer requests. You can fill out a, on the, the little slip there a prayer request, and it will go on a prayer report that goes out every Monday or Tuesday to the prayer team of the church to pray. Notice right away there, there are two names of God in verse 1. It says, the Most High, and that's El Elyon. If you've been with us on Wednesday night, you know all about the God Most High, El Elyon. Because Daniel had it 12 times in 12 chapters. This, this word, name for God is in Psalms 19 times, including twice in Psalm 91. So you've got the name, the God, the Most High. And then you've got the name Almighty, which translates El Shaddai. And that's the omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe. So you've got the Most High, El Elyon, and you've got the Almighty, El Shaddai. So when you go to prayer and you're dialing 911 to God, you're going to the throne room, and El Elyon, the sovereign God of the universe, answers the phone. And if that wasn't enough, the psalmist says that the all, El Shaddai, the omnipotent, all-powerful God, answers the phone. I'm not saying there's two gods. There's one God that has many names that describe his eminence. Do you live in the presence of the living God? You'll be dialing 911. The prayer warrior number two trusts in the Lord's protection. Verse 2 says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So first off, you dial 911, and then you dial 912. And you have two more names of God in this verse. You have Lord, translated Yahweh, which is the, the number one name for God for Israel, the Israel's covenant-keeping God. And then you have God, which is the name Elohim. And that was the, you know, in the beginning, God, Genesis 1-1. God created the heavens and the earth. I think it's 31 times in Genesis 1. So let me reread verses 1 and 2 again using these names. He who dwells in the shelter of El Elyon will abide in the shadow of El Shaddai. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, Elohim, in whom I trust. I don't know about you, but that gives me confidence when I talk to God that he's answering the phone, that he's listening to me, and he will answer my prayer according to his perfect will. Briefly, we'll get there later, but look down at verse 14. Look down at verse 14. It says... Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him. Because what? He knows my name. So the psalmist knows the name of God. He'll use four names of God in the first two, first two verses here. He knows the character of God because each one of these names describes God in a different way, his character, his attributes. So the psalmist knows the names of God because he knows the character of God by reading through the Bible and knowing them. He grows an understanding of God as he learns about God and his attributes. James Boyce asked the question, is the God of the Bible your refuge in times of trouble? And you also notice in verse 1 and 2, not only are there four names of God, there are four metaphors for the protection that God provides. 
In verse 1, we have shelter and shadow. In verse 2, we have refuge and fortress. So four names of God and four metaphors for protection. The four names of God with four metaphors for protection of God. But I think the key words might be the verbs in verse 1. It says, he who dwells. Dwells in verse 1 is a verb, an action required. And then abides is a verb, and the action required there. So dwells means that you're going to remain. Literally, Webster's Dictionary for the word dwells means you remain for some time. So he who dwells, he who remains some time in the presence of the living God. He who abides, that person abides with God, spends time with God. And abides means to endure without yielding. Nothing's more important than this psalmist praying to God. The psalmist says in Psalms 55, 17, Evening and morning and at noon I will utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Psalm 143 says, O Yahweh, hear my prayer. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. Psalms 141, 2 says, May my prayer be established as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. And if you go to Revelation chapter 8, we won't turn there, it describes that the prayers of the saints in Revelation as the incense that goes into the throne room of heaven. So let me ask the question, do you live in close fellowship with God? Do you rest in the shadow of the Almighty? The psalmist here encourages us not to just dial 911 for emergencies, which of course we do, but to dial 911 on a constant and consistent everyday basis. In the past few weeks, Lance taught us from, his, uh, from Hebrews 11, and he gave us a message, I think two weeks ago, do I adore God test. Do you remember that one? Do I adore God? Anybody remember what point one was of the do, do I adore God test? Anybody know? It's there is an excitation to be with God. And that just means you, you want to get up in the morning and you want to pray. You want to pray throughout the day. Maybe you hear a siren. Maybe you hear something on the news. I get text messages to pray from the prayer team, things like that. So Lance has taught us, do I adore God? And the verse that he used there was Psalm 119.20 that says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Then last Sunday, just this last Sunday, a few days ago, Lance asked the question, do you adore the presence of God? Do you acknowledge the power of God? You know, in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, I love that series of two verses. It says in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God delights in those people who know his name. God delights when you talk to him. When, when you understand the character of God, you're going to be praying to him. And I'm telling you, we need more prayer warriors at Christ Community Church. We need more prayer meetings at Christ Community Church. And we need more prayer across the United States. Let's go to point number two. Dial 911 because of God's care and protection. I'm going to do something a little different here. Because the personal pronoun that jumps off the page here is you, you. So let me read it a different way. I'm going to replace the you with my name. Maybe I should use your names, but I might mess up. So let me start in verse 3. 
For he will deliver Bruce from the snare of the fowler and from deadly pestilence. He will cover Bruce with his pinions, and under his wings Bruce will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Bruce will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near Bruce. You will, Bruce will only look on it with your, his eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall Bruce. No plague shall come near your tent. So I think you have maybe 13, some translations, 14 times you have the word you there. So maybe sometimes if you're struggling, may sometimes you put your name in there and pray that back to God as the psalmist does. So uh, in section one, we saw that the psalmist put his trust in God. And now in section two, the psalmist commends that faith to us by explaining what God does for us. And there's seven things you see in their outline. We're going to see seven things that God does for the psalmist. And number one, it says in verse three, that God is going to save you. He says he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from deadly pestilence. So in verse three, the psalmist lists two dangers there that God's going to save the psalmist from. And these would have been a lot more common in Israel's time than perhaps today, although deadly pestilence we can relate to with COVID now, I guess we could, but a lot more common in the psalmist's day. The psalmist has the snare of the fowler, which we've been metaphor. By the way, I think there's at least 12, at least 12 metaphors in these 13 verses. So when you read the Psalms, you've got to take some time to stop. What does it mean refuge? What does it mean snare of the fowler and study it? But Snare of the fowler would be a metaphor for the enemies of the psalmist, the enemies of the nation Israel. And death by pestilence, which would be death by disease, which was very common then, not as common as it would be today. This is not a promise that God won't allow a believer to die from disease, but it's a principle that God often heals us from our diseases. All throughout our lives, God is constantly healing us until that day he takes us home to himself, which is ultimate healing from our sin-stained bodies. So God will save you, number one. Number two, and we're going to spend a little bit of time here, God will shield you, okay? It says in verse four, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. In the Psalms, we have many verses that are like this, that, that the use of birds as metaphors. Psalm 17.8 says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalms 36.7 says, the children of mankind Take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 61.4 says, Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Psalm 57.1 says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. You know who knows the Psalms? Jesus Christ knows the Psalms. And he knows Psalm 91. I believe he knows Psalm 91. Because in Matthew 23, 37, a very common verse, if you want to turn there, you can, Matthew 23, 37, Jesus describes what he wants to do with the children of Israel. You know, in John 1, it says that, that he came into his own, and his own received him not. The children of Israel did not receive him. And Jesus, in Matthew 27, 37, says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I have get how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he would have saved the children of Israel and its inhabitants if they would have received him, but they did not receive him. In fact, the people were not willing. Instead, they cried out for his crucifixion. What Christ wanted to do to the nation of Israel in Matthew 27, quoting Psalm 91, is illustrated by a real-life story. There was a forest fire that had brought under control, and a group of firefighters were working through the devastation, making sure that all the hot spots were being extinguished. As they marched across the, the blackened landscape, between the wisps of smoke still rising from the smoldering remains, one of the firefighters saw a large clump, a lump on the trail, and it caught his eye. As he got closer, he noticed it was a charred remains of a large bird, which had burned nearly halfway through. Since birds can easily fly away when there's a fire, it, it attracted his attention, and he wondered what must have been wrong with this bird that it could not have escaped the fire. Had it been sick? Had it been injured? Arriving at the carcass, he decided to kick it off the trail with his boot. As soon as he did that, however, he was startled half to death by a flurry of activity around his feet. Four little birds flailed in the dust and the ash and then scurried down the trail. The bulk of the mother's body had covered them from the searing flames. Though the heat was enough to consume her, it allowed her babies to find safety underneath. In the face of the rising flames, she had stayed with her young. Her dead carcass and her fleeing chicks told the story well enough. She gave the ultimate sacrifice to save her young. The hen in the story was the only chance those baby chicks had to live for safety. She, being willing to spare her own life, had gathered them under her wings to herself at the point of terrible pain and death. When she might have saved herself, she chose to stay and through the ordeal. As we have observed in our free-range chickens, this is the author talking, not all chicks run to their mothers in time of danger. Some are paralyzed, some panic, some try to find a way to save themselves, and they usually die. The mother hen cannot run around gathering them individually. They have to come to the mother hen. But the greater story is illustrated in one that's really beyond our full grasp, and it's the true story of our Creator, who before time made a way to save his own wandering children from Jerusalem. When Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how I often long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Let's go to point number three. God will safeguard you. He then continues in verse four, and he says, and his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. When we dial 911 and have immediate access to the very throne room of God with Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of God, he is faithful. He is always faithful. It's one of his greatest attributes. So the third thing that God will do for you is he's going to safeguard you, and we have two more metaphors here. The metaphor for shield and buckler. The first time the word shield is used is in the Bible is in Genesis 15:1. When God says to Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings who raided Sodom, when they took his nephew Lot, God told Abraham, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So the shield is a large covering the whole body. Now the Hebrew word here for buckler is quite controversial with commentators, making it difficult to translate. The NIV says rampart. The NASB says wall. The New Living Translation just says protection. It's some type of protection, some type of 
uh, battle armament equipment that protects us, that safeguards us, which is good because the Bible describes Satan in 1 Peter 5, 8 as a roaring lion looking to devour someone. But if you stay close to Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father, and especially in prayer, God will safeguard you. How exactly does he protect us? The King James Version may have captured it best when it says, His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. It's God's word and God's character are truth, and we can trust in them. Believers who are constantly dialing 911, prayer warriors, are also constantly reading their Bibles. I cannot not pray when I read my Bible. When I read a psalm every morning, when I read a proverb, when I read a couple chapters of the Old Testament, and I'm usually in one book, I'm in 1 Corinthians this month, the New Testament, I have to stop periodically and pray. Maybe it's a sin I need to forgive. If it's about the king, i got to pray for President Biden and Kamala Harris. If it's about, you know, you have to stop and pray when you're reading your Bible. The Holy Spirit tells you, and you have to dial 911. Let's move on to point number four. God will shelter you, verses 5 and 6. He says, you will not fear the terror of the night. Notice the four, the four nors or nots. Not the fear of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. So you've got more metaphors here, and you've got a fourfold use of not. Terrors, weapons, pestilence, and destruction. And then you've got night, day, noon, darkness, or in poetry we call a miriasm, and it just expressed the totality of all time. God will shelter you through all situations. He will shelter you through all time. He's always with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And remember, verse 1, our psalm began with those words, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, and went on to list four metaphors for protection. Let's move on to to number 5, God will sustain you. Okay, and that's verses 7 to 10. It says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near you. So we have a near application to the psalmist, and we have a far application to us. The near application is that God will pay the wicked their due, and the Israelites quite often just had to sit back and watch God work. Many commentators believe that the, what's ha- what they're talking about here is that great story of when the Shernacherib, the king of Assyria, came to attack Jerusalem during the reign of King Hezekiah. This is such a great Bible story that it's mentioned three times. It's in Second Chronicles 32, it's in Second Kings 18, and it's in Isaiah 36 to 37. Three times we have the story of Shernacherib's army coming, surrounding Jerusalem, and he sends a courier who mocks the Israelites, who mocks the living God, and Hezekiah uh, tears his robe, and they send emissaries to Isaiah the prophet. And it's a long story, but Isaiah says, Go back and tell Hezekiah, he shall not come into the city. He won't even shoot one arrow into the city. And it says, That night, the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians. And that's exactly what verse 7 to 10 says. Thousands died at your side. All the Israelites had to do was look over the wall and see that. They didn't have to lift up a a bow or a sword or a shield. God fought the battle for them, and God will sustain you. So the future application for us 
is there's going to be a great day of judgment when God destroys the wicked of this world. But God rescues the righteous because he paid for their sin at the cross. In verse 9, we again have the name El Elyon, the Most High God, the second time in the psalm, which we saw in our Daniel series, The Magnificence of the Most High God, where it's mentioned 12 times. Let's move on to verse, point number 6, God will secure you. It says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Does that verse sound any familiar from anybody from the New Testament? Guess who else knows the Psalms? Apparently Satan. This is the only place, the only verse in the Bible that Satan quotes. Okay, Satan must know the Bible. I think he's very orthodox. He doesn't believe it, but he knows it. So if you turn to Luke chapter 4, the story's also in Matthew 4. In Luke chapter 4, um, Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Okay, but just like Genesis 3, when Satan... Satan twisted scripture and said, did God really say? In Luke chapter 4, Satan omits some of the words of Psalms. And you see what he omits? Satan quotes scripture, and Jesus will quote scripture right back to Satan. So Satan omits the words, um, in, in all your ways, in all your ways. He omits that. He says, he, he quotes, for he will command his angels concerning you. He's trying to test Jesus to guard you. But he doesn't put the words in all your ways. And then he quotes verse 12, On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan quotes Psalms 91 to Jesus. And Jesus quotes back Deuteronomy 6.16 to Satan, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan used this passage in Psalm to try to justify testing Jesus Christ. But the passage is about trusting God. And Jesus did not fall for the test. He didn't fall for the temptation. He knew his father and he trusted in his father. You know, it reminds me, we we all need to know the word of God. And just like Jesus quoted scripture back three times to Satan, we need to quote scripture back to Satan. And we need to quote scripture to God. Jesus overcame Satan temptation and misquotation of scripture by trusting God. And, And it's interesting in Matthew's account of the same story. In Matthew 4, verse 11 says... The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were administering him. I think we overlooked that fact, right? Because we can't see angels. But just like verse 11 says here, that angels can guard you. They were guarding Jesus, and they might be guarding us through times of our life. You know, we live in a pretty safe country. But I've lived the last 18 years overseas before coming home the last three years. And it's a lot more dangerous overseas, (laughs) That's why a lot of people want to move here, for security, for safety, while they're crossing the border. But I don't think we realize how many times maybe angels protect us, angels watch over us. But God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways is one of the promises of God. Jesus triumphed over Satan by trusting God and gave us an example that we can be victorious over Satan too. Let's move on to the seventh, number seven, God will strengthen you. He says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Again, we have more metaphors here. These two metaphors are deadly animals, okay, that show the danger the psalmist faced. Now, we may not face these, these here, but I mentioned Satan is called a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5. He's also called in Revelation that ancient serpent, okay? But the Bible tells us in Romans 16:20 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
So God cared for the children of Israel. God cares for his church. But his church needs to be dialing 911. And we need God's care and we need his protection. So seven things that God cares for you and protects you. Let's move to the last paragraph. Number three, we got to dial 911 because of God's love. And these last three verses are just absolutely incredible verses. You almost need a message on its own. But the personal pronoun I want you to notice here is I. It depends on your translation. Mine, six times I have I. But some translations, if you take the last verse, you can add another one. Seven times it has I. But unlike paragraph one where the I is me or the psalmist, the I here in verse 14 to 16 is God. God is speaking here. And it's really incredible what he says. So this time God is speaking. And I've got three points there. The prayer warrior loves God. The prayer warrior knows God's name. And God promises, I will. So the prayer warrior loves God. It says in verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love. The ESV says that the NIV and NSV simply say because he loves me. It literally means you fall in love. You literally fall in love with God. The word love here in Hebrew is not the normal word used. It's only used 11 times in the Old Testament. It means that this person has a passion for God. So like we've been talking about on Sunday, do you adore God? And like I'm telling tonight, you need to dial 911. If you love God, you have a passion for him, you're going to spend time in serious prayer for him. You know, we often will dial 911 for an emergency, right? A soldier in a trench will cry out. The old saying, there's no atheist in the foxhole. A person who has no money might beg for God. A person who's diagnosed with a serious illness immediately cries out to God. That's not the psalmist here, though. He has a passion for God before, during, and after any crisis. It comes that way because his love for God is not centered on what God does for him or what prayer requests God answers. His love for God is simply because of who God is. God is love, and he loves God. You know, we used to sing the song in Sunday school, Jesus loves me, this I know. But the psalmist is just saying what it says in Psalms 18, verse 1. Psalms 18, verse 1 says, I love you, O Lord. I I sometimes say that in my prayers. I love you, O Lord. Let's go on to number two. The prayer warrior knows God's name. We talked a little bit about this before, because he knows my name. You know, today the name of God has been misused, abused in our society. It's used as a cuss word. It's used flippantly. You know, they say OMG. And verse one, though, the psalmist called out four different names of God. And that's why I love to, to study or look at the Hebrew. Every time I come in Psalms, I try to, if I can find it or know it, I write the name in Hebrew, El Shaddai or El Rofi or, you know, what the name is, because it teaches me about the character and attributes of God. The psalmist knows God's name, and he knows God's name, and he has power in his prayers. There's a quote that says, much prayer, much power, little prayer, little power. Let's move on to number three. Because the prayer warrior loves God, because the prayer warrior knows God, he's going to pray to God. And in verses 14 to 16, we've got seven more promises from God. And you don't have room in your outline to put them unless you want to flip the page. Sorry. But number one, it says, I will deliver him. God's going to deliver him. That's in verse 14b. The first of six I will statements from God the Father speaking. I will deliver him. So there might be six, there might be seven in your translations. Okay? In times of trouble and danger... God kept the psalmist and the nation of Israel safe, and he will keep us safe. Number two, 
God will protect him. It says, I will protect him. The second I will statement, God says, I'm going to stand by him, and I'm not going to leave him or forsake him. So God will protect him. Number three, God will answer him. It says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. The third I will is I will answer him. This psalmist speaks to God often. You know, there's no busy signal when you dial 911 to God. Now, when we went to Louisiana a couple months ago for the hurricane relief, talking to the people there, we always ask the question, what was it like the day the hurricane waters came or when the lake overflowed? And they all said they dialed 911, but you couldn't get through because there were just too many people calling, too big emergency, the system could not handle it. But not when we talk to God. He can talk to the whole world at one time if we talk to him. Number four, God will be with him. I will be with him in trouble. Isn't it always interesting how Lance last Sunday took us to Isaiah 43, verse 2, and I had this verse already on my outline. And remember what it said? It says, Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the river, the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. God says, I will be with you in the time of trouble. The psalmist isn't asking to escape the trouble. God's saying, you're going to go through some troubles, and we all go through troubles in life, especially if you're a Christian. God says, I will be with him in that time of troubles. Number five, God says, I will rescue him. It just says in verse 15, the last line, I will rescue him. I will rescue him. And I will not only rescue him, number six, I will honor him. Literally means I'm going to exalt him high. I'm going to lift him up. God will exalt the prayer warrior. He'll have a special relationship with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, and our Heavenly Father, and he will be honored. And then lastly, he says, with long life, I'm sorry, I think there's one more. Number seven, God will satisfy him. He says, with long life, I will satisfy him. It doesn't mean you're going to live to be, you know, Psalm 90. Moses said, if you live 70 or 80 years, that's a good life. But it means you're going to have a prosperous life. You're going to have a full life, an abundant life, like Jesus says in John 10. And this is a common theme in uh, wisdom literature. Proverbs 3 says, verse 1 and 2, My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And then Proverbs 3.16 says, Long life is at our hand. So there's a lot of verses in the wisdom literature that talk about a godly man or woman abiding in Christ and that they will have a prosperous and long life. I said there was seven. There's actually eight, I think. Number eight, and it doesn't say I will, but it says, and show him my salvation. So I've written in I will, that very last sentence, and I will show him my salvation. Now understand in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, when it says salvation, it means deliverance. It means deliverance from enemies, things like that. Okay? But for us New Testament Christians... God did show us his salvation, didn't he? By sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in my and your place. He says, I will show him my salvation. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrated that salvation. He demonstrated his love to us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Charles Spurgeon says about this, the blessings here that are promised, these eight I wills or seven I wills, the blessings here promised are not for all believers, but for those who live in close fellowship with God. 
Every child of God looks towards the inner sanctuary and the mercy seat. Yet all do not dwell in the most holy place. They run to it at times and enjoy occasional approaches to the most holy places, but they do not habitually reside in the mysterious presence. So why do not all Christians abide in the shelter of the Most High? Why do not all Christians get up in the morning and have a quiet time and spend prayer? Let me give you four obstacles to prayer. Four obstacles to prayer tonight. Number one, I'm not sanctified or holy, and it keeps me from my Father. It's that simple. If you're in habitual sin, if you're in sin, it will keep you away. Sin will keep you away from the Bible. It will also keep you away from prayer. And you'll have a weak prayer life. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished sin, if I love sin in my life, God will not hear my prayer. Okay? Psalm Isaiah 50, is it 59, 2, says God does not hear the prayers of the sinners. Okay? So you have to be holy. That's why when you go to prayer, the first thing you do is you confess your sins. If you want to learn about prayers, and we just finished one of the greatest prayers in the Bible in Daniel chapter 9, right? But look at how Daniel prayed in Daniel 9. Look at how Nehemiah prayed in Nehemiah 1. They always acknowledged their sinfulnesses, their family's sinfulnesses, and of course the nation of Israel's sinfulness. When I pray, I, I ask God to forgive not only my sins, but the sins of the United States of America. Okay, number one, I'm not sanctified and holy, and that keeps me from praying to my Father. Number two, I don't know God's character, his care, his protection, and love. I don't really know God really well. It says, because he knows my name, in verse 14, the psalmist knew God's name. The psalmist had a special relationship with God. I was talking to someone tonight, and I said, hey, I got that on my outline tonight. After the uh, massacre a couple weeks ago in uh, Texas, a lot of people were asking, what's the number one problem in the United States? It's not guns. Is it video games? What is the number one problem? And somebody made the case that the number one problem is fatherless children. I thought a lot about that because I, I, I realized, I don't know if that's true. I don't know what you think. The guy I was talking tonight said, yep, I think it's true. And he's in law enforcement, so he'd know it more than me. But a lot of boys and girls who grow up without fathers, what happens? They go into a life of crime, right? But, you know, I was thinking about that, that it's pretty much the same in the evangelical world, isn't it? We have a lot of people that said yes to Jesus Christ. They know the plan of salvation. They got baptized, but they don't finish being discipled. They don't obey what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Go into the world, make disciples, baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, they forget about verse 20. What's verse 20 of Matthew 28 say? And they are to teach them. They're to teach them everything I have taught you. So they don't learn how to pray. They may not learn how to get into the Bible. If you're not reading your Bible, you're not a disciple. You know, I've, 18 years of overseas, when I got somebody that says yes to the Lord, I wasn't real thrilled. But when they got into the Bible, that that's the disciple. That's the disciple. But we've got a lot of not absent. Our, our father's not an absentee father. We've got a lot of absentee children in the evangelical world. They have a ticket to heaven. They literally have a ticket to heaven. They know the plan of salvation. They got baptized. They come to church, but they're not growing. They don't know God's name. They're not, they, they're, praise God, some of them are going to the fundamentals of the faith class. Some of them are going to electives. They're learning and growing. But a lot, a lot of people are. So they need 
to go to a Sunday school class. They need to go to the electives that Harold Fraser teaches, that Roger teaches, and I teach a few of them. They need to learn how to pray. My wife uh, worked with the Thailand Women's uh, Christian Society, and there were women there that did not know how to pray. And it took years to get them to pray. But then every Friday, they would have a three-hour prayer meeting. And it was wonderful. And they'd make me sit on it sometimes when I didn't want to because it's three hours. But they would, these women who did not know how to pray, that would, they were the ones that would go to you, don't call on me, don't call on me. You ever know those people? They would say that. And yet then in this hour prayer meeting, they would rotate and they would pray and they would pray. And it's wonderful to see. That's why I tell you, read one psalm a day and it will improve your prayer life. So, number one, I'm not sanctified or holy, and it keeps me from the Father. I don't pray. Number two, I don't know God's character, care, and protection. Number three, there's this attitude of people that says, if God's will is going to be done anyway, why should I pray in the first place? we got a lot of lazy, lackadaisical Christians that, well, you know, Jesus is going to come. God's doing it. He doesn't really need my prayers or care about my prayers. But, you know, prayer is not only about changing what God wants, It's about God changing what we want. There's a wonderful prayer book called The Praying Life by Paul Paul E. Miller. I think the reason I like it is he has a special needs child, and I have a special needs child. But he, he has a quote there, and I think the quote's from Alexander Wythe, and it says, Prayer is the exercise of a will that is free within a will that is sovereign. In other words, prayer does not change the will of God, but brings the believer into alignment with the will of God. You got that? I know that's long. But we need to pray uh, asking for what God desires for us in answer to believing prayer. Number four, the fourth obstacle, God is loving and all-powerful. Why doesn't he fix my circumstances? We pray once, we pray twice, and then we quit, right? But we've been talking all through Sunday's messages about the desert experience, haven't we? You know, and I was thinking when uh, Moses left, left, right, he left, he was there 40 years, and then he left and went into the desert for another 40 years. I was thinking that means the, the children of Israel were slaves, and Pharaoh was killing the newborns for 80 years before Moses came back. That's a long time to suffer. Sometimes God lets us suffer, and we're going to learn about that in our Job series. But prayer is not only about changing God's plan but God changing our plans. And some of us are in a desert experience and we want God to fix things. We want God to change things when we just need to stand still and listen to God. Now, Psalms 91 has convicted me to pray more. I'm not standing before you like I'm some great prayer warrior beating you up with a bully pulpit to pray more. But we do need to dial 911 like never before. I want to give you two examples tonight of the total depravity of our nation, okay? Number one, what is going on with all these drag shows across the United States? Okay, they are in libraries, they're in kindergartens, they're in schools where transvestites are showing. And I'm going to just be blunt with you. I lived eight years in Thailand. We got a lot of transvestites in Thailand, and they're pretty. They're not ugly. You can't even tell the difference. But these ones, they are ugly. (laughs) Yet parents are bringing their kids to them. So don't, don't go off on that. Number two, today in the California Senate, I don't know if they passed it, but they debated AB 2223 bill. This is a bill to protect abortion providers, 
And, you know, there's a lot of people arguing about it, but basically they're protecting the, the, the abortionists from, from legal consequences. That if the baby lives, and I guess babies can live through an abortion, they can kill it up to seven days after the baby's born. So I was thinking about that. They're not content to just kill the baby in the uterus. They will kill it afterwards. So don't go political on me. I'm just stating those two things to say our country is just going into total depravity. And that means we need to pray. You can complain. You can talk politics. You know, I've I've gone to men's Bible studies, and all of a sudden they're talking about Obama and this and that. And like, guys, shut up. We're here to pray, not complain. So let me just ask a few questions in the two minutes left. When was the last time you prayed for your neighbors in the neighborhood you live in? You say, well, I don't know them. They don't talk to me. God knows them. Just say, God, that guy that doesn't talk to me or doesn't like me or takes my parking spot or whatever, pray for your neighbors on a regular basis. If you would just stop. If you remember the message Lance had probably about four or five weeks ago, and he talked about the desert. And what's in the desert? No noise, right? And he talked about the Walkman and all the noise. We live in a noise-filled world, don't we? And we've always got our phones beeping to tell us the latest thing or what's going on. Sometimes you just need to take a time of quiet, get rid of all the noise, and think about what I could pray for. So you need to stop the noise of today's world and go to a quiet place and pray. I love the, the Psalms 5.3. I love the, the living, living uh, uh, the LSB translation says, O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. I love that. So I'm out of time, but I just wanted to mention uh, our Lord St. Jesus Christ, finish with his words. Jesus taught 40 parables, and three of them were on prayer. But the one I want to mention tonight is Luke 18, 1 to 8. And Jesus says in verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they, listen carefully, ought always to pray and not lose heart. I think there's a lot of Christians seeing the sinfulness of our world, what's going on in our politics, and they lose heart. Jesus says there that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then Jesus will go on and talk about the persistent widow. You remember that prayer? The persistent widow banging on the judge's door, give me justice, give me justice. And finally the judge who says, I don't, you know, I don't care about this lady and I'm not a godly man, but I'm going to answer her request and then verse seven says, verse eight says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He says, will Jesus find faith on earth? The context is prayer. And he says, will he find faith on earth? John MacArthur's commentary on this verse eight of Luke 18 says, this suggests that when Jesus Christ returns, True faith will be comparatively rare. I think that's the time right now. Jesus is going to come back. Will he find a lot of faith? No. Will he find a lot of people praying? No. But I believe he will find prayer warriors at Christ Community Church. So let's close and dial 911 one more time. Father, thank you for Psalm 91. Thank you that Jesus loves Psalm 91 and he wants to shelter the nation of Israel and all the people of the world under his wings But we know that men love sin and they love darkness. But Father, we do pray that Christ Community Church would be a praying church, that the people of Christ Community Church would pray with the prayer team, that they would pray at home alone, that they'd pray in the morning, 
in the afternoon, throughout the day. May they pray without ceasing that when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns, he will find faith at Christ Community Church. So, hell, Father, help us to be prayer warriors. Thank you that we can come to you anytime, any place, direct access to the very throne room of God and El Elyon, the God Most High, Elohim, El Shaddai, are listening to us. Not four gods, but one God. He's there answering and listening to us. Teach us how to pray. Teach us to pray more. Prick our hearts, burden our hearts. When we hear a siren, when we hear some bad news, when we see our neighbors, when we see something we don't like, may we stop complaining and start praying. May we leave here tonight dialing 911. In Jesus' name, amen.